Don't let your final farewell stir up family feuds. Welcome to Before You Go, a podcast brought to you by Texas Estate, Trust and Guardianship Attorneys, Stacey Kelly and Keith Morris. Preserve your hard-earned legacy. Be in the know. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Before You Go. I'm Keith Morris, and here with Stacey Kelly, and our first inaugural guest on the podcast, Beth Owens from American National Bank and Trust. And I'm going to let her talk about herself a little bit so that we know what she does and, and where she works. Um, I'm Beth Owens. I am a trust officer at American National Bank and Trust. I am a, also a recovering probate litigator that made the transition over to the trust side about 15 years ago, the brighter side of things, the resolution side of things is what I like to tell people. But because of my background in probate litigation, I've been able to come up with some creative solutions on the trust side to help take care of Keith and Stacy's clients in the long run. And we've all known each other for a very long time, so this is, should be an interesting conversation. Before we get started, I want to mention our sponsor that we have for the podcast, which is Mindful Home Ventures. They are an innovative real estate investment team located in Austin, Texas. Their mission centers on providing homeowners with no lowball offers and win-win solutions, prioritizing peace of mind. Their aim is to solve complex problems in difficult real estate situations. They provide a white glove approach to probate estates and trust companies' real estate needs. They utilize their expertise and financing strategies to help homeowners navigate the trust or probate process seamlessly. They will purchase a house as is with no closing costs or repair expenses and offer 20 different probate services some of which are paying for attorney's fees, rehoming animals, purchasing vehicles, biohazard cleanup, moving services, and estate sales, along with a few more. They assist consumers, attorneys, and trust companies with their services all over the state of Texas. You can get more information about their services and schedule a consultation at www.mindfulhomeventures.com or call them at 512-710-0718. I've used them in my practice. I appreciate their professional and tailored approach and highly recommend services. And we will include their information in the show notes. So now we can get on to our topic for today, which is introduction to Texas Trust Administration and Litigation. And I will turn it over to Stacey. Hi there. Welcome to our third podcast. We're going to try to make this somewhat simple, an overview, as Keith mentioned. The definition of a trust in Texas is generally defined as a fiduciary relationship with respect to property, which is created by the settler with the intention to create the relationship. What is a fiduciary relationship? Simply put, it's anyone who has possession of or control over the property or money of another person. Now, in the trust, you have three key parties that are involved. That's the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiaries. The settler, as we discussed, is the person that creates the trust. And the settler within the trust chooses their trustee. Now, the trustee can be an individual or a corporate like Beth is. The trustee is responsible for administering the trust in good faith according to the terms of the trust. A trustee is also bound by the Texas Trust Code and common law. There can be some exceptions to that depending upon what's in the trust, but basically it's the same duties. And of course, the beneficiary is the person or persons who are entitled to all or a portion of the trust assets. And the trust itself controls what the beneficiary 
is entitled to and when they're entitled to it. Now, there are different types of trust in Texas, and Keith, why don't you give an overview of those? When we deal with trust in Texas, there are some that are created through trust instruments, some that are created through wills, and some that are created for a specific purpose. The first is one that you'd usually go to a lawyer during your lifetime to set up would be either a revocable or irrevocable trust. So revocable trust, as the name implies, is a trust that can be changed by the settler or a designated person, depending on how the trust is structured. The settlor, as Stacy mentioned, is the person that creates it. The trustee is someone like Beth or an individual that would administer the trust, and the beneficiary is the person that receives the assets or the benefit from the trust. So in a revocable trust, the terms of the trust can be changed or revoked over time. An irrevocable trust, as the name implies, is very difficult to revoke. In fact, it generally requires a judicial process in order to revoke. Some of the reasons why people set up these trusts is for creditor protection. Also, in the case of incapacity, and I'll let Beth talk about that more later, but an irrevocable trust generally can be creditor protected, assuming that the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiary are not the same person because they've determined through case law that if someone has control of those three areas, then essentially it is the same thing. You know, it's considered an alter ego of the person and therefore doesn't really have any purpose other than benefiting the beneficiary, which is also serves the other two roles. But if you do an irrevocable trust correctly, that can be one of the benefits. There are other ones and, and Beth will talk about those. But the revocable trust doesn't really provide any credit protection because there's no certainty, finality or anything like that because it can be changed, amended or revoked at any time. So that's that. There are also special needs trusts, and those trusts are typically set up to benefit either a child or elderly incapacitated person in order to make sure that they are able to continue to receive government benefits and that the money that they may or may not have does not cause conflicts with any state or federal regulations regarding Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, things of that nature. Um, and then a testamentary trust is a trust that's created in a will. You can include a trust that only is formed at uh, once an individual dies. And then the will would say, I'm going to create a trust for the benefit of my grandchildren. And the assets are to be managed by the trustee that I'm naming herein. And they should receive this much money every year or this percentage. And then the trust terminates at 25, 30, 35, 60, whatever the person who's preparing the will determines. So those are the three kinds of trusts in Texas. And then I will turn it over to Beth to talk about purposes and benefits of setting up trusts. So a lot of people initially think you set up a trust for estate tax purposes. That's usually the number one misconception that I get from everyone. This day and age, there's such nominal percentage of people out there that really need to consider trust for tax purposes. I always tell people, if you have special assets, if you're a special person, or if you have a special family, then you might want to consider setting up a trust. As Keith was going through revocable trust, so a lot of times if you don't have family and you feel a revocable trust would be in your best interest to appoint a corporate trustee to help you as you decline you know, mentally or physically as you age, a revocable trust may be the best situation for you to have that assistance in your ongoing care and managing your assets as you get older. Also, if you have a special family, a revocable trust is kind of nice. If you feel like you've got two great kids, but you've got one troublemaker out there, 
setting up a revocable trust and appointing an independent trustee upon your incapacity would help you avoid guardianship proceedings or any fighting amongst the family members or amongst the kids that think they know what's best for you or what's best for mom and dad. And then last, special assets. I have a lot of clients that have small businesses or have multiple rental homes. In those situations, I also recommend a revocable trust in appointing a corporate trustee or some another trustee rather than a family member that has the capacity to manage those assets. If you've got an income stream for rental property rolling in, you don't want those rental properties sold, but your sons and your daughters or your brothers and sisters don't know how to manage those assets, but your family friend does, and he has been your partner for the past 20 years, setting up a revocable trust is a great solution to where when the time comes, all the assets can keep stay in one place and keep rolling as they were when you were taking care of them. So that's why I always go with special people, special assets, or special families or good reasons to set up a trust. You and I talked yesterday when we were preparing that, you know, we sort of have a difference of opinion on on revocable trusts. You think it's a good idea because of incapacity during lifetime. My concern about trusts generally is that someone will go in and talk to their attorney and say, hey, I, I really want to trust and it'll get set up. And then the, the attorney will give them instructions on what they need to do. And then they end up not funding it properly or not transferring assets. I mean, the thing that's important to remember about that is that anytime you change assets, vehicles, property, anything of that nature, those things then have to be transferred into that trust, right? I mean, Stacy, Beth, I mean, that's how it works. If it's not in there, then it has to go, it'll pass through your estate, right? Correct. And you always want to bookend if you do decide to have a trust. You do want to fund it and you always want to bookend it with a limited power of appointment where someone has the ability to transfer assets that are in your individual name into your trust. That way, not if, but when you forget to transfer an asset into a trust, there's some corporate trustees and some banks that will actually serve in that capacity to transfer those assets into trust. But that's, again, I think you have to be in the right situation for a trust to be your option. If you have a functioning family and someone that you would trust to be your power of attorney, you don't really have to worry about it. I just don't know if all of us are that lucky to be in that situation anymore. <laughs> well, we don't we don't see those people, right, Stacey? I mean, we see that. We yeah, see never, the people. never. That's why how we stay in business. That's right. Is the dysfunction? Yes. One of the things that's important to discuss is the roles and responsibilities of trustees. So Stacey, tell us about that in terms of, you know, what what, it, what are their duties and obligations and the, and the rights that a trustee has, whether it may be corporate or individual? Again, as I mentioned earlier, a trustee becomes the fiduciary for the beneficiaries. And that is a specialized relationship under the laws. The duties basically include acting in the best interest of the beneficiary at all times and taking reasonable steps to maintain control of the trust property and investing and managing trust assets prudently. There's a duty to administer the trust according to its terms. So before someone should accept the role as a trustee, make sure someone has explained to you, you have someone explain to you exactly what your duties are and how to administer this trust, what you can, cannot do. Can you loan money? Can you borrow money? Can you buy assets from the trust? Can you encumber trust assets? 
trustee also has a duty of loyalty, again, to the beneficiary. So with that duty of loyalty is also a duty to keep the beneficiary informed on what's going on with the trust. You can't ignore the beneficiaries. You need to communicate with them. You have a a duty of care, obedience, good faith. That's an important one, good faith. A trustee may do something that's not considered necessarily proper by the trust, but if it's in good faith and doesn't harm the trust, those activities or the actions that the trustee took can be corrected usually without removal of the trustee, if you will. A big one is the duty not to self-deal. And that means, for instance, loaning yourself money out of the trust with maybe no interest and not just taking out 10000 and figuring you'll pay it back at some later date. Some of these duties can be altered depending upon the terms of the trust. So a trustee, a, a settler may put in the trust that their trustee can borrow money, but be very careful if you're going to do that. Make sure it's at a good interest rate and that there were enough assets of the trust to loan you that money. I would never advise, if I were representing a trustee, I would never advise them to loan themselves money, purchase trust assets. I would stay completely away from the trust in my personal financial dealings. Of course, you don't really have that problem with corporate trustees like Beth. They don't need to loan themselves money or self-deal out of trust. And the the big one is you, you can't waste trust assets. So you shouldn't have just a bunch of money lying around that's not invested. You have a duty to make sure that the trust has all of their assets prudently invested like you would invest yourself. So you probably shouldn't go invest in some startup company that doesn't have a track record of making good money. I mean, you need to invest as you would invest for yourself. And as I've mentioned, these duties can be altered a bit depending upon what the settler puts in there. But most of the time, you're going to have these duties as laid out by the Texas Trust Code and common law as to what you can and, and cannot do. Beth and I can't discuss details, but a common okay. a, a situation that we've encountered recently is, you know, we have a situation where there's a trust that benefits a person and then there are some remainder beneficiaries and the beneficiary is making requests that they feel like the trust is not honoring because you're a trustee doesn't mean you have to do everything the beneficiary asks, right, Beth? I mean, that's not how that works. Well, and that's where Stacy was going into duty of loyalty. You have a duty of loyalty to all beneficiaries, the beneficiary right now and the beneficiaries down the line. And then you've got to follow the terms of the document. So just because your beneficiary wants more money doesn't mean you as trustee should give them more money. I usually see it the other way around where we step into the role as successor trustee. It's usually the individual trustee doesn't want to give them any money. They're more worried about the remainder men, the ones that get it after the current beneficiary dies, than they are the current beneficiary. So you have it's a balancing act. You have to consider under the terms of the document, how much should you give the current beneficiary and how much do you really need to preserve for remainder of it? And you can customize that in your trust. You can put your intent in there as well to deal with that. And as a corporate trustee, I love having language in there. Please tell me what your purpose was. Please tell me who you want me to take care of first. 
Do you want me to drain this trust down for your wife and so that your kids don't get squat? Put that in the document because the trust code doesn't tell you that. So that's absolutely like one of my favorite things. Tell me what this trust is for in your document. And then also another thing, same trust situation that Keith was discussing about dealing with beneficiaries. We also have difficult assets on that one because we have more than half of the trust is just in real estate. And as a trustee, as Stacy said, you've got a duty to prudently invest. Well, you've got fun little case law out there that basically says you can't invest in anything over 10%. So when you have, you know, over half of the trust in real estate, as a trustee, you need to document why you're keeping that real estate. Is there a good reason for it? And in the same situation that Keith and I are in, the beneficiary doesn't understand why we're constantly having to justify why we are keeping this real estate that's so much of an asset of the trust. And when you're a trustee, you know, if you've got the difficult beneficiaries and the difficult assets, and whether those assets are a large portion of the trust or whether they're just weird assets, nail salons, dry cleaners, I know that blows a lot of people's minds like what's wrong with the dry cleaners? Well, you've got environmental issues with your dry cleaners and you've got environmental issues with the nail salon. If somebody comes to me with commercial property, that's the first question I ask is who are your tenants? Because if you've got a nail salon or a tire mechanic, there's not enough insurance for me on that one to be able to handle those assets in trust. Plus, those are also notorious for being money laundering outfits, nail salons. In fact, we had a bankruptcy case early, early, early in my career where a very famous member of a, a mob group was laundering money through nail salons in Las Vegas. And so that's something else to consider, too, is that as the trustee, you're responsible for making sure that no one's pocketing cash out of the cash register and walking out the door with it. So that makes that increasingly more difficult when it's things like that and dry cleaners, which are largely cash businesses, right? And with the environmental issues, the same thing with the money laundry, you're individually liable. So as trustee, you have to remember whatever you're managing, most of the time you're only liable within the trust, but IRS, EPA, all those federal agencies can come after you and your bank accounts individually if you do something wrong. So that's the scary part of managing assets in the trust. But I find that the most difficult situations are the beneficiaries, and if there's a concentration of assets. And I feel like if you work with your estate planning attorney and really draft around those situations and make it clear, you can avoid litigation down the line. So, yeah. And the important thing to mention is that, like Stacey was saying before, and I want to clarify this with you duty of loyalty does not mean that you have to do everything that your primary beneficiary says. That means that you are obligated to, within reason and within the terms of the trust, to provide for them in the manner in which the trust allows. But it doesn't mean going outside the terms of the trust and be loyal to them in all areas and cater to their every need, despite what the situation is, right? There's a big difference between loyalty and catering to their every need. You have to do what's in their best interest. And if the assets are in trust, especially if a testamentary trust where mom and dad set it up for the kids, there's a reason for it. And you've got to think about what's truly in their best interest, not what they want. They may want the brand new Mercedes convertible, 
They may absolutely want that, but there's a really good pre-owned Ford Focus that they're going to end up with. And I mean, that's just life. It's the way it goes. I've got a beneficiary now that does not understand why we won't make a huge distribution to purchase an RV. Well, I'm not going to make this huge distribution for an RV when I'm worried about this trust lasting for your lifetime. I'm worried about how you're going to eat in 20 years. And so I always tell people, I'll give you a no, but you're going to know why I'm saying no, but I'm going to still try to come up with some solution to the problem at hand. Yeah. And that sort of segues into the next topic, which you know is best practices. And that is, as Beth said, when there are requests made that you document either why you did or did not approve the request being as specific as possible than it is for an individual where they may not necessarily be as attuned to what their rights and duties are. That also brings up another thing, which is if you're a trustee, you need to have an attorney. I mean, you absolutely need to have someone to advise you about what you can and can't do. I mean, right, Stacey, you you can't just go around as a trustee without being an attorney. Absolutely. I mean, you're just asking for trouble because you will end up with an attorney eventually. Yeah. And it may be on the other side. And two, I feel like the, you know, as an individual trustee, especially if you're the trustee for your brother, your sister, your siblings, you're put into a very uncomfortable situation and you're no longer brother and sister. You're their financial advisor. You're their bookkeeper. You're the purse strings. And having an attorney involved to say, ah, it's not really my fault. Keith told me to do it. Really takes the monkey off of your back. And also, I've seen situations where attorneys were like, yeah, you really need to spend a little bit more money on your sibling. Like, I understand that you're trying to teach her a lesson, but in the reality is, you're kind of breaching your fiduciary duty by not paying her rent. So I think having someone that doesn't have feelings involved in the situation as an individual trustee, you have to have that attorney to give you that neutral advice. And, you know, going along with the keeping accurate records, that means documenting why and why you won't follow some instructions or requests. It also means making sure that you keep good financial records, which again, in the case of a bank is easy. You guys prepare statements and everything else, but individual trustees need to make sure that they're using something like QuickBooks or even a spreadsheet and that they keep every receipt for the expenditures that they have in the event that an accounting is requested, which we can discuss in a few minutes. So there's that. But then the other thing is, and it dovetails, is communicating effectively with the beneficiary. And like you said earlier, you know, the beneficiary or their attorney contacts you and says, hey, you know, Bob wants a convertible Mercedes. And you say no. Well, you say no, but, you know, we'll buy you this. And the reason why we don't want to get you this Mercedes is because your trust is only worth a million dollars and you're 25 years old and we have to ensure that we keep it for your lifetime. So what sorts of things do y'all do in addition to that to communicate information to beneficiaries so they feel like they're being kept informed and and the bank is complying with their fiduciary duties? So it depends. I'm a big advocate of the follow-up email, especially as a corporate trustee, you'll get phone calls constantly. I want this, I want that. And you can explain it to them verbally, but... If you do that follow-up email as according to our discussion, this is why we're not doing this, or this is why we are doing this, 
And I think that's very important. So that's a big thing following up. And luckily we have email now and before you have to send them a letter. So you shoot a quick email, just making sure it's all out there. It's documentation. A lot of corporate trustees have a built-in principal and income accounting system. So it does the balancing between income and principal for you. That's the thing to keep in mind as an individual trustee whenever you're deciding to invest assets. If you go with like a registered investment advisor or another corporate trustee and appoint them as your agent to manage investments, they most likely are doing their statements according to principal and income accounting. That's part of their software program, whereas a broker doesn't have that ability to keep track of those records. So that's by two cents right there. If you're an individual trustee, make sure you hire a registered investment advisor or another corporate trustee to manage the assets um, and keep copies of everything. I mean, get you a good scanner and start scanning in all those receipts. Well, that goes into the beneficiary rights. First and foremost, a beneficiary has a right to the distributions as specified in the trust. It's the whole reason it's set up to benefit the people who the settler wanted to benefit. But that beneficiary has the right to all this information that Beth is talking about and can view these documents reason upon a reasonable request, should be able to view the documents. And the beneficiary has the right to have the trustee explain their decisions to them. So, you know, as Beth mentioned, send the follow-up email, make sure you're communicating with the beneficiary because they're entitled to know everything you do. And common law even says if the trustee does something illegal, they have to disclose that to the beneficiary, theoretically. So the beneficiaries do have the right to all information on it and accountings, as Beth was mentioning. You have a right to an accounting, and the trust document itself can specify when, how often the trustee has to provide an accounting to the beneficiary. You know, it could be yearly, quarterly, what whatever that is, or they can specify that it's an official accounting so often, but trustee needs to send bank statements. I mean, all of that can be laid out in the trust. And if they're not laid out in the trust, the trustee needs to make sure they're set up in a way that they know the beneficiaries are getting all the information that they're entitled to. So you have a right to know exactly what's going on if you're the beneficiary even if you're a remainder beneficiary, you kind of have a right to know what's going on and what distributions are being made if they're not being made. As Beth mentioned, if you're not going to buy them that RV, you know, the beneficiary has a right to know why you're not buying them that RV. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, there's some trusts that have language about the accounting that just says upon request. But best practices is to probably provide a yearly accounting, right? Even if the standard is lower, that sometimes going above and beyond is better than letting a longer period of time build up and then have to prepare an accounting that covers 10 years, right, Beth? I mean, that's onerous and very expensive, especially if the trust is able to charge the beneficiary for doing those things, right? Absolutely. So typically with your current beneficiaries, you need to be sending them statements quarterly, which if you're working with a registered investment advisor or corporate trustee, their statements will actually have a formal accounting built into it and a recapitulation in there. So that kind of alleviates that issue. And work with, talk to your financial institution, you know, talk to your investment advisor because they can set up third-party statements to be sent to the beneficiaries. 
they're not going to do it automatically. So you've got to say, hey, I need to make sure you're sending statements to this person, this person, this person, and here's their address. But that immediately starts the statute of limitations running and you're already fulfilling your duty to account, duty to keep informed just by your financial institution sending a copy of the statement. And so as far as when a beneficiary feels like they need to challenge a trustee's decision, obviously grounds for challenges would be if the beneficiary believes that any of the trustee uh, violated any of the duties that Stacy described, right? Or that they have mis- misused an asset or haven't accounted timely. So, you know, the first step generally is hiring a lawyer, obviously, or you don't have to some and for this step, which is sending a letter or an email to the trustee demanding an accounting. And whenever you do that, make sure that you, you list the time period that you're requesting the accounting for. So the trustee knows what period of time they need to gather everything up and provide it to you. But in the event that doesn't happen, sort of the next step is filing a lawsuit or a formal demand in court that the judge will order the trustee to provide an accounting and may, depending on what's found, may result in the trustee's removal, right? I mean, that's that's what happens. It can, yeah. And that's a lot of times where we come in. <laughs> right. I mean, trustees get removed or voluntarily resign and then companies like American National Bank and Trust where Beth Works gets appointed and then she ends up being the trust officer for that particular trust. That's kind of where you guys come in a lot of the time in these cases, right? You know, and I encourage people if they feel like they're going to have an issue with one of the beneficiaries, if you're in a situation where you really don't want to be the trustee, but you feel obligated to be the trustee, that situation right there is always right for litigation. I don't really want to do it, but I feel like I have to do it. Well, with that kind of attitude, you're just going to open yourself up for liability because you're, you don't want to do it. Appoint a co-trustee with you. Appoint a corporate trustee as agent with you so that they can do the heavy lifting, but you're still part of the whole process and so that you don't end up having to call your attorney. Right. I mean, that obviates that individual trustee from certain responsibilities by appointing a successor or a co-trustee, especially when it's a bank with a team of people that can provide the documentation and respond timely to requests and things of that nature. And that allows you just to maintain the family or personal relationship so that, you know, sometimes parting the trustees handholding and maybe the bank doesn't have as much time to do that as an individual would, depending on what their circumstances. So it seems to me, at least in situations that I've seen where there's an individual trustee and a bank serving as co-trustees that really provides the full realm of services slash touchy feeliness that the beneficiaries require in order to, to make that relationship successful. As we're getting toward the end, protecting the beneficiary, what things does the trustee do to help protect the beneficiary? And then what things, Beth and Stacy, both of you, do you feel like are things that then, you know, the attorney needs to do to protect their client who's the beneficiary? So in our role as trustee, I start talking about money laundering as trustee, we're protecting the beneficiary from themselves. We're protecting the beneficiary from scammers. We're protecting the beneficiary from their spouse. The prince in Nigeria that wants to give them $10 million (laughs) in exchange for their $1 million. Yep. I mean, I've got multiple emails from the supposed husband of beneficiaries that I've never seen, never met. 
and he needs money. And then also you've got that role to protect their finances. But also as a trustee, you've also got a role to be their advocate or to hire an advocate for them. A lot of situations you have beneficiaries that have medical needs, have special needs, and they can't advocate for themselves. Or And if there's not a family member to advocate for themselves, as a trustee managing finances, you really need to hire a care manager, hire a care advocate that can help your beneficiary do what's not only in her best financial interest, but also in her medical interest. Right. And it's not just doling out money. I mean, we've talked a lot about the distributions. It's not just about doling out money for the beneficiary to buy a car or house or this. Like Beth said, she's got to recognize when the beneficiary may need something else, may need a caretaker in the home or may need a special needs van or something. So yeah, it's not just about distributing the money. It's having a relationship with the beneficiary. So I think in closing, the important thing is the takeaways are one, Sometimes having a corporate trustee is better than having an individual. And in the case that they need a corporate trustee, Beth, you guys are always willing to step in that role. And if they want to contact the bank, they would go to www.amnat.com, right? And they can find your phone number or someone in the office's phone number there. And also just, you know, if you're an individual and you have been appointed a trustee and you don't really know what to do, call an attorney, seek some guidance. Um, Stacy and I are always willing to help people with that. And sometimes you have people call and they're like, oh, well, I don't want to call because the consultations would cost some money. We don't charge for consultations. So if someone just calls and asks questions, we're happy to help. And so if, if you want to reach out to Stacy or I, you can go to www.theblumfirm.com. Stacy's in Houston. I'm in Fort Worth. We cover all of Texas. And so we'd be happy to answer questions and uh, get help. And more information about us and about Beth will be in the show notes. And so we are at the end of episode three. We had our first guest, Beth Owens. Thank you so much for your time today. It was fantastic. We will definitely have you on again because I'm sure we're gonna have many more trustee questions. These are things that you should know before you go. And so we thank you for your time and look forward to episode four. Thank you. Now, before you go, learn more about how Stacy and Keith can help protect you by calling MK Legal or visiting us on the web. Links to our website and phone number are in the show notes. The information on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and receipt, viewing, or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. 